few days. Uh, a word about Bill Johnson. I, I appreciate his ministry here a great deal. And don't you appreciate the hard work that he does and the diligence and preparation and the time that he spends and, and his good preparation. Thoughtful and Bill, thank you. And I hope you had a little refreshment and that you're ready to go back at it. And Beth, thank you as well. You know, I, I would probably be amiss of doing this, but I'll do it anyhow. I charge into things sometimes. When uh, Eric was uh, about 36 years old, am I right, Eric, about 36? Uh, he was unmarried, and he met, well, he probably met her at about 34. And he met Sharna. And Sharna was, had been to Ecuador for a time and was preparing to go back to Ecuador working with Baptist Mid Missions in, uh, in a missions role in Ecuador. And both of them had decided that, before the Lord, that they were willing to be single. And both of them would kind of like to have been married, but life being what it was, both of them had come to a point where they concluded that maybe they would be single. Am I telling this story correct, Eric? Shake your head like this. Okay. <laughs> you correct me, Charter Eric, if I get a wrong detail. Not a good idea to tell someone else's story, is it? But then uh, they met. At, actually, Eric was teaching a kids' class at a church in Talmadge. And Sharna came in, and I think she kind of liked the fact that Eric was teaching a kids' class. And she thought that was kind of unusual for a man in his 30s. And she came in, and they became friends through a mutual friend and began to correspond. Then Sharna went back to Ecuador for a year. She was coming back to the U.S. to do graduate studies and kind of some prep work. And uh, we all were trying to nudge Eric gently because it looked like there might be an opportunity here, but I, I am always hesitant to play Cupid. I don't do that. And so Eric slowly, methodically moved forward. Am I right, Eric? Okay. And, and today uh, they are blessed with four little children, uh, and, and we are blessed to have Eric and Sharna in our family and walking with the Lord and seeking to raise their children to know and serve the Lord. And so I have much to thank the Lord for this morning. We're blessed people. And, and that's just one little nugget. In fact, let's just take a minute and tell him how grateful we are. Can we do that? Lord, we recognize that we live in a very unique time on this earth. We have freedoms that are unique. We have privileges that are unparalleled. Lord, in the midst of all of this prosperity, uh, we have you. We have the freedom from sin and from its penalty and from its presence through our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We are a blessed people. Lord, we want to give you thanks this morning for grace and for mercy and for your continued presence with us. Lord, thank you for your word. When we uh, tackle a passage like we're working through this morning, we realize that uh, our words are not adequate, and we want to confess that to you. We will not seek to describe you, you who are indescribable. But Lord, give us a glimpse of yourself this morning through your word. Our heart is to know you better, trust you more, and in doing that, to love you more, and to serve you. 
And so, Lord, we commit this time to you, asking you to do your good work through the Spirit, through your Word, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we started on the book of Job. And I said at the beginning we were going to fly over from 50,000 feet. And that's about what we did. We just caught a few glimpses of things. And if you remember, those that were here, I posed a question that I thought was really the heart of the book of Job. If you have your Bibles, uh, you might want to open to Job 1. We're going to read a number of passages again this morning. But I think this is the, the question that sets the foundation for the book of Job out of chapter 1. Uh, verse 9, and then following kind of explains it. So, Satan uh, asked the Lord. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? And then he explains his question. He said, uh, haven't you made a hedge about him and about his household? In other words, you've protected him and around all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, and you've increased uh, in the land. But now stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will surely curse. He'll curse you through your face. And so the question is, does Job fear God for nothing? And I don't know that I read these verses last week, but I think that question is answered right here. Because look here in chapter 1, in verse 21, Job, after he's lost so much, lost his stuff and lost his family, here's what he says. And Twanya says that I rose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And I marvel at that. At that time in his life, with what he was experiencing, that he stopped to worship. And here's what he said. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How many times have we heard that over the years? So, the question, will Job or anyone serve God for nothing? And, and I think he answered it. He said, I don't have anything, but I didn't have anything before. And yes, I'll serve the Lord for nothing. Then a little later, I think his wife was being sympathetic to his plight. She wasn't giving up on him, but she wanted to see his suffering in. And I think her faith was probably shaken badly. Because she didn't have much confidence at this point in the Lord in bringing him through the trial. And so his wife says to him in chapter 2, uh, verse 9, Job, she says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, I, again, I think that was a statement of, of just sympathy and concern for him, don't you? Because what she was saying is, Job, this is awful. Don't go through any more of this. Just curse God and die. Look at his response. He said to her, this is amazing work. This is a real man. Jim, this is a guy like you and I, you know, that he could say this back. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Now, maybe that wasn't the best statement, huh? But look from there. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so, the summary is, will a man serve God for nothing? And the answer is, yes. We see it right before us. A good lesson for us. And so, 
what we saw from there is that his friends came. And we're going to look at that in just a second. And they tried to tie this thing into a neat little theological package. They tried to put God in a box and God's ways in a box. And I think this is what they said. They said, uh, not that the righteous would always prosper and the wicked would always suffer. I mean, that, they, were, they were contending around that. Uh, because we know that the righteous do suffer and the wicked do prosper sometimes. Am I right? We, we see it around us. So they tried to box it up and say, Job, if you do right, you're going to prosper. If you do wrong, you're going to suffer. And that's just the way it is. And so they, they laid that package out before him, and Job said, no, that's not true. And he contended time and again, if you read through the book, and he repeated, I have not done anything worthy of this. Bill, am I right? You can correct me anywhere along the line. You're the pastor here, you know. But he just continued to contend. He knew his own heart. And while he knew he wasn't perfect, and you see hints of this, he knew that he had not willingly done anything that was in direct rebellion to God. And he said, no, it's not right. The, the righteous do not always prosper, and, and the, sometimes the wicked prosper. And that becomes the basis of the argument to come. So this week we're going to take a flight over from about 30,000 feet. And if you remember last week, I promised to finish on time this week. One of the things you'll appreciate about having Bill back is he finishes on time. But we're going to drop down to about 30,000 feet, and we're going to look at Job's friends, and then Job's, re I mean, the response that he gave them along the way. And what I'm hoping is that we can learn a couple things. We can learn how to react to trouble in our life but that we can also re learn how to react to the trouble in a friend's life. You know, one time, a number of years ago, I went to visit a friend. I didn't exactly know what had happened. But this friend had been really active in the church, and he'd been directing lots of things in the church, and all of a sudden, he disappeared. Now, I corresponded with him often enough to know that there was something wrong. So I went to his home, not so far from here, and knocked on the door, and it was dark. And he bid me come in. And there he was sitting in a room, and I'm, this is, as I remembered, absolutely true. He was sitting in a room with the shades all pulled, with no lights on, in the middle of the day, and sitting in total despair. Now, in his case, he had violated his conscience, and he couldn't get over it. You know, I, I sat there with him for a few minutes. I didn't know what to say. Because he was so despondent that there was not much to say. And so, what do you say to a friend in a circumstance like that? What do you say to someone whose pain is so deep that they just do not know how to dig out of it? And really, that's who you see in Job. It's a guy a little bit like my friend. Well... I didn't say anything profound that day, let me assure you. I didn't have anything much to say, except I tried to convey to him that, that I loved him as a brother and that the Lord loved him. And I remember very well, in my simple faith, and it was even simpler then, that's not a bad thing, in saying to him, you know, the Lord has demonstrated his love for you, friend. I won't give his name. 
And he demonstrated clearly at the cross. Look back to the cross. You want to know if the Lord Jesus loved you? And he wasn't sure that he did at that moment. Look back to the cross. The cross is the greatest statement of the love of God. Yes, it's the statement of the severity of sin. But it's the greatest statement of the love of God that could ever be made on this earth. So, when we look at Job's friends and uh, how they came to help, I would say, let's start by saying how not to help friends. Uh, they came. That was good. If you look at uh, chapter 2, I think you see um, the, the account of their coming. Verse 11, Job's three friends heard of his adversity, and each of them came from their own place, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Uh, for they had made an appointment together to come and to mourn with him and to comfort him. So his friends came. That was good. They came from some distance. It's a little hard to identify their exact homes, but they came from some distance at some cost. Uh, probably a good lesson for us to start there. Sometimes it costs us something to go to a friend, doesn't it? But then they, they do a second good thing. Look at uh, what it says just in the verses to follow. The second thing they did was cry. You know, Romans 12 tells us there's a time to rejoice with those that rejoice and a time to weep with those that weep. Sometimes, the very most profound thing you can do for someone is simply to stand and cry with them. I remember uh, 20 years ago or so having the funeral of an infant. Just a little tiny as a baby. Uh, just a week or two old as I recall. And the parents come by and their heart is broken. Maybe some of you experienced some of that. And what do I say to those parents? I didn't say anything. I just cried with them. I embraced them. And I'm not sure that was the wrong thing to do. And when Job's friends come and, and sat down with him, it says in verse 12, they raised their eyes from afar, the they didn't recognize him. They lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. And they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word. So far, they're doing really well. <laughs> if they'd have just stopped there, they'd have had a wonderful visit. But they didn't. Well, in the third chapter, you find Job defends himself. And from that moment on, they just concluded he was guilty. They said time and again, and we'll look at this in just a second. They said time and again, Job, you're suffering because of your sin. That's why you're hurting. Repent. Turn back to God, everything will be okay. And Job, time and time again, responded, it, it isn't true. I didn't do that. Now, I think it's important for us to take note that these were not evil, uncaring men. That's not who they were. They came a long way to see Job. They came at great personal cost of time and resources. And, and so they weren't evil men. And they did care for him. They cared for his soul. They cared for his needs. When they looked at him, they cried. But they didn't quite understand the ways of God. And I think therein is their error. They were making assumptions based on their theological construct, based on what they understood about God. They were making assumptions that were wrong. And we'll see that the Lord concludes that at the end. Uh, they had a foundational error, I believe. And I want to track some conversations. I don't know how long it's been since you've been through the book of Job. But I tried to pick out some representative texts of these conversations 
And just track with me for a few minutes, and we're going to read through a couple of these. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Eliphaz seems to be the senior of these three friends. And incidentally, a fourth friend enters the scene, Elihu, a younger man, later in the book. And he's an interesting character. And let me just say this. I'm not even going into Elihu. We don't have near the time to talk about him. But Elihu is not rebuked by the Lord. The Lord never says you said wrong. But Elihu is pretty sharp in his comments to Job. It seems as though he begins well, but he doesn't end very well. So I'm not sure what to think of Elihu. But, so there is a fourth friend there, a young man that's been sitting, listening to all this conversation, and he says, I'm about to burst. I think that's the way he starts his comments. I can't wait any longer. I've got to say something. And he did. Well, here's Eliphaz, the senior of the three, it seems. And if you pick it up at verse 7 of chapter 4, after hearing Job's defense, here's what he says. Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even, even as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. Do you see where he's going? Pretty clear, isn't it? Just bounce down to chapter 5, verse 17. Catch the end of his comments. 5.17 says, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Isn't it easy for us to play fast and loose with somebody else's life and somebody else's suffering? You know, I really think that sometimes going in and quoting Romans 8 to someone hurting is the wrong thing to do. Probably not the right thing to do. Not at that moment. Quoted to him before. Not during. But happy is the man whom the Lord corrects. Uh, therefore, don't despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, he binds up, he wounds, and his hands make whole. And what is he assuming through this all? He's assuming guilt, right? He's assuming that Job is guilty as charged, as he's charged him. So he says, Job, this is chastening. God's just spanking you. And does God ever spank the believer? Yes, he does. So... What he's saying isn't inherently wrong. His problem is that he assumes guilt. He has no right to do that. That's where his problem comes in. And so, Job responds to it. Look at chapter 7, verse 11. The rhetoric begins. Job says, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Then look at verse 20. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target, so that I am a burden to myself? So Job says, you, this, is, this isn't the way it happened. I, I, it isn't, you're not seeing it right. Then Bildad speaks, his second friend. And Bildad says, how long will you speak these things, Job? In verse, chapter 8, verse 2. And the words of your mouth be like a strong wind, he says in verse 6 of chapter 8. Uh, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would await you, or arise for you is the idea, and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Job, fess up. Isn't that what he's saying? Just tell it like it is. Uh, if you were pure 
then he would arise for you. So you're not pure. Look at Job's response, 9, 1 to 4. Job answered, he said, Truly I know it is so. How can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and prospered. Who has hardened himself against God and prospered? So, Job is saying, yeah, what you're saying is right about God's chastening, but that's not me. That's not where I am. And so Zophar speaks, the third friend. And bear with me on this because we're going to get through these conversations. I want to give you the background a little bit. Because when we come out the other end, I think we can learn some things about helping each other from their mistake. Right? Zophar speaks, chapter 11. And Zophar says, Should not the multitudes of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Job, you're talking too much. You're defending yourself too much. Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? For you've said, my doctrine is pure. And then he goes on in the latter part of verse 6, and he says, you're actually receiving less than your iniquity deserves. <laughs> Job, you deserve a whole lot worse than you're getting. It's pretty bad right now. And, and then you see the responses get more caustic. They get more severe. In chapter 12, Job answered and said, No doubt you're the people and wisdom will die with you. You see the sarcasm. You guys have all of it together. Wisdom's going to die with you. And I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? Now let me just read this kind of the summary of Job's response on his friends. Chapter 16, verse 2. Job answers. And he says of his friends, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. <laughs> That's his summary. You guys are pretty doggone miserable. You've offered nothing to help me, nothing at all. Now, if these are good and well-intentioned men, I think they are, don't you? Now, I just think they had good intentions. And they came to help Job. Where did they go wrong? Well, they assumed guilt. Maybe that was part of it. But I think if you're sitting to talking to a despondent friend, the first thing is to realize you may not have all the answers. You don't have to have all the answers. You know, we have in our blessed time some things that Job and his friends did not have. And if you have the notes, I listed just some of the things that we have. Job cried out several times for a mediator, someone to go between him and God, right? And he never got the sense that there was anyone that could make that connection between him and God. Do we have a mediator? We have the mediator, the Lord Jesus. And when he went back to heaven, he became our advocate. He pleads our cause. And so the first thing that we have that Job didn't have is a mediator. We have that go-between. That Christ was made flesh like us. He knows the experience of this humanness. And he became our mediator. And so we, we have such an advantage that we can look to our mediator, the one who can plead our cause and who does regularly. And the second thing we have that they did not have is the completed word of God. And we have the whole of the New Testament to explain all of this. These men were way showers, and so was Job. They, they did not have all of the light that we have. 
we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, the other comforter who was to come. And if we will but quiet our hearts in difficult moments and sit and wait on God, the indwelling Holy Spirit will bring comfort. We have the account of Job. That's pretty important. Because as you, you wrestle through the account of Job, which I've done for weeks, and you think it through, you begin to realize that in the end, Job is blessed. But Job is blessed by the knowledge of God and by the presence of God. He's blessed by knowing God. He's not blessed by his stuff. The stuff is incidental. He's blessed by the presence of God. And so are we. And, and that's a decision we need to make on the front end. Then the, the last thing I had on that list is that we have a caring community. You know, that's what the church is. The church is instructed in how to help and is organized so that we can help. We have shepherds in the church to care for souls. We have leaders in the church, but we also have one another. How many times does it instruct us in the epistles to care for one another, to love one another, to comfort one another? You know, time and again, uh, Proverbs uh, says this, Proverbs 27.9. Neat verse. Oil and perfume delight the heart. And the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. And someone has said that that is talking about counsel of the soul. That there's a sweetness when someone comes alongside you. And that's what the church is about, isn't it? To come alongside one another. To, to, out of loving concern for one another. Not to make merchandise of them, but to help them, to comfort them. So God has given us caring community. You know, verses like Galatians 6.1. We, we, we tend to see it, but not practice it. Brethren, if you, if you have a friend that's overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, go to such a one. And what? Restore it. And how? In a spirit of meekness and humility. And it, then the next verse says, bear one another's burdens. Did the friends do that? Did Job's friends do that? Well, he did it at some level. But then they began to conclude guilt and they kind of gave up on Job. The first thing we need to do is go. If you see a friend in need, go. Uh, I, I'm glad that I went to see that friend sitting in that dark room. Even though I didn't have all the answers, I think for him to know that the body of Christ was responding to him, that there were people who cared for him was important. So if you, if you see somebody who has a need, go. Uh, you say, I, you know, I don't know what to say. Don't worry about what to say. Respond. Go. If the Lord puts them on your heart. And that's the starting point. And the second thing that they didn't do so well was listen. Listen well. Listen to what they have to say. Listen to their heart. Uh, don't take casually the problems they're experiencing. It's easy for us to say, Job, how could you question the handling of God on your life? Now, it's easy for us to say, but if we're there, we realize that through the hurt and pain, we'd say, God, what is happening here? What's going on in my life? You ever been there? I, I've been there a few times in my life. I'm not going to tell you about it. But I said, God, what's going on in my life? Maybe you have to have a few gray hair to experience much of that. Uh, it, it's easy for us to just casually approach that. You can't do that. The fact is... Job should not question what God is doing in his life. He should not have. But the, the, 
the way to approach him would have been to love him and to cry with him and to sit with him and to listen to him, to learn his heart. This is a great verse, one of my very favorite verses in all scripture, out of Philippians 2. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Hard to do, isn't it? So when we go, it's not about us. Sometimes when we go to a friend, it can become about our success in counseling. It can become about us providing answers, right? I mean, you ever have that experience? You go and there's a sense of frustration that builds up, and so you say, you know, I need to be able to help, and so it suddenly becomes about us. It becomes about our success. It becomes about our answers. It becomes about us walking away feeling like we've helped, and it can't be that. We esteem others better than ourselves. We can't go thinking about us. It's never about us when we go to our friends. It's about them, just like when Christ came. It was about us. And he's the example in Philippians 2. We aren't always going to have the answer. And sometimes we just are going to weep. You know, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians talks a lot about comfort. If we can get minds focused on things like this, to comfort one another with the fact that Christ is coming and that we'll be with him forever. You have to be careful how you do that. You know, yesterday at about 6 o'clock, I happened to flip the TV on. I think that the rapture, as he predicted, it was supposed to happen yesterday at 6 or so, wasn't it? Something in, in dinner time. So I flipped the TV. I'm going to make sure I didn't miss it. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, my theology wasn't messed up. And then I forgot about it for a while, and I flipped on a ball game to see how they were doing. And then I realized that the evening had gone by, and the rapture hadn't occurred. I'm a little disheartened by that because I think it does a disservice to people who are outside the faith. To us, I, I think, uh, Ray, you said in class, that, or someone said, maybe it was Jeff, that it was kind of just a refresher to us. I guess it was you, Jeff. And it just caused us to think about it a little bit. And that's okay. We ought to think about it. But to those who are outside the faith, another date setter, it came and went, He's not coming. These guys are just fooled. It's, it's been hoodwinked by that truth. He, he's not coming. But there is great comfort in the fact that Christ is coming again. And Christ is coming again. So we comfort one another with truths like that. And we, we comfort one another with truths like this, that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, comfort and edify, build up one another with these truths. We comfort one another with things like this, our, our knowing that we have a high priest. Uh, we do not have a high priest, Hebrews uh, 4, 15, 16, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we can attain mercy and grace to help in times of need. Our Lord knows our heart, our Lord knows our need, and he's sympathetic to them. He can be approached. And we need to comfort one another with truths like that. Now let me ask a question, just in closing. What was it that Job needed most of all when he was so despondent and he couldn't see his way out of it? What was it 
that he needed most of all. We think. Four letters. Starts with an H. H O P E. He needed hope. He had lost all hope. There are times when our job as fellow members of the body of Christ is to bring hope to someone else. Hope that there's an end to this. Hope that the Lord Jesus is going to rescue them from this. And often, the anticipation of a problem is much worse than the problem. You ever notice that? And we need to help people to hope through these things. And Job needed hope, and his friends failed to get it. I'm just going to close with this text out of Romans chapter 5. Great passage of hope. Jeff read it earlier. Let me read it again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that where you are this morning? Have you been justified by faith? And because of it, do you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our hope is that, that God's plans and His great glory are going to come to be. It's all coming, folks. It's coming. The Lord Jesus is coming back, but the Lord Jesus can also intervene in our lives today. Eric, at age 36, didn't think he had much hope of being married. And, and did the Lord, do you have the evidence before you that the Lord intervened in his life and brought Sharna? You do. And, and those times when we think that we just don't see hope, uh, the Lord Jesus is able to bring hope to that. And the Lord Jesus is, to, is able to intervene in those times. And not only that, verse 3, but we also glory in tribulations. Uh, you glory in tribulation? I don't always. I don't like to have a sore toe. You know, I don't like it at all. I don't like to have difficulty in my life. But why would I glory? Well, I would glory because of what follows. Knowing that the test, the tribulation, the trial produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And so there's a progression. And the progression ends up in hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because God keeps his promises. God never fails. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Our hope is in Christ. You know, this is a... Uh, Job, Job is an exercise. It's a, there's a somberness to Job. But there's also a commonness in the human journey that all of us are going to have difficulties at one time or another. Christ even said, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And so while there's a somberness, there's a deliverance. When you look at the end, Job met God and he was satisfied. He was satisfied by the presence and person of God. And so can we be. And one more thing I might add. That God-shaped void that is in all of us will be satisfied by none but him. We'll be satisfied in no other way than through the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, we once again recognize we speak words too high for us. But we believe that we will be satisfied only in you and no other. Lord Jesus, there, there are those this morning who are struggling in their faith, who do not have hope. Would you bring them hope through your person? Would you bring them hope through your word and through your spirit? Would you bring them hope through this community of believers? Lord, our hope is in you. You are the hope of glory. And we give you thanks for that blessed hope that you will never fail, that you'll never leave us, never forsake us. Lord, we trust you this morning. We love you. God, help us to love you more. Help us to love you as you deserve. Lord, encourage our hearts this morning to walk in you, to look to you as the source of our satisfaction, of our hope. And we thank you for all of this. Uh, and we acknowledge that all of this is possible because of Jesus and what he's done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.